Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. A couple of guys you may not be familiar with their names. Anthony Schioli and Henry Biller are psychology professors who wrote a book called Hope in the Age of Anxiety. Hope in the Age of Anxiety. I have a book that gives me hope in the Age of Anxiety. But their book um, seeks to offer some help and some guidance and some assistance from a psychological point of view. And in it, in one of the chapters... They list out nine types of hopelessness. Nine types of hopelessness. See if perhaps one of these falls in an area that may be familiar to you. Number one, alienation. Alienation. Number two, forsakenness. Number three, lack of inspiration. Number four, powerlessness. Number five, oppression. Number six, limitedness. Number seven, doom. Number eight, captivity. And number nine, helplessness. Let me run that list again. Listen closely to these things that they've drawn out. These are what they say are types of hopelessness and and reasons for people feeling hopeless. Alienation, forsakenness, lack of inspiration, powerlessness, oppression, limitedness, doom, captivity, and helplessness. I read that list. And each one of these are followed, by the way, by their own strategies for overcoming these uh, elements of hopelessness. I read through the list and I thought, you know what? Every single one of these can both potently and absolutely and eternally be overcome by faith in Jesus Christ. Now I know there are even believers, Christians, who would say, you know, when you start talking about depression and you start telling me all I need is Jesus, it makes me feel like I'm just missing something because I've tried everything and I've tried coming to the Lord and I'm still dealing with depression. Listen. Jesus said, Isaiah 60, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now you know that's where Jesus stopped when He announced His ministry in Luke chapter 4. Quoting from Isaiah, he, he gives this feel, but he stops halfway through the second verse and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Guess what? That means that day it was fulfilled in their hearing. I have a flair for the obvious. <laughs> but understand that. If that scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus and in His first coming and now for everyone after who believes in Him, then yes, I believe He has the power to overcome our depressions, our hopelessness. Got to take it to Him. I think that's part of the problem. and This is not a judgment of anybody here. But I think part of the problem is we say, oh, I've tried going to Jesus and He's just not helping. Have you really? I mean, have you really? Done more than spoken a five-minute prayer in the morning and wondered why your day didn't get better after that? I mean, have you really pressed into Jesus? Sought out knowing Jesus? Spent time walking with Jesus? I guarantee you, depression lifts the more we're with Him. 
But like any relationship, it takes time and commitment. It takes walking with Jesus. It would be like me saying, my wife Cheryl and I are this close, but I haven't seen her in five years. That makes no sense. Right? Jesus, I believe, lifts the hopelessness. In all these areas, He has the ability to do that. He claimed to have fulfilled all of these needs. All of these things. Good news to the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. And if you are any of those things, Jesus says, fulfilled. I'm here for you. Now what Jesus didn't say, and what Isaiah went on to say in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2, the second half of the verse, is that... Jesus also came to, or will come to, fulfill the day of the vengeance of our God. And to comfort all who mourn. Now, that just doesn't seem like it fits. Think about the list here. He anointed me to bring good news. Alright. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Yes. To proclaim liberty to captives. Far out. Freedom to prisoners. Alright. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. Wow. And then he says, and to comfort those who mourn. So now we're back on track. But whoa, the day of vengeance, how is that a good thing? I think that belongs on the list as much as anything else for the hopeless. The hopeless need be aware of the day of the vengeance of our God. Why is that? It may seem like an unlikely tool for overcoming despair, but what it means and why it's set in Scripture here is, I believe, to remind God's people that He is sufficient to make a complete end to sin. And sin and depravity gang are the real culprits behind hopelessness. You know, Scioli and Biller have their list. My list is very simple. One reason for hopelessness in the world, sin. Remove sin, you remove hopelessness. And the day of the vengeance of our God is the day of the Lord that is that day of God pouring out wrath to drive out sin from the world. To remove the lies and the brutalities and the injustice that causes hopelessness. And He will do it. And so while we begin the night study with the apparent darkness and doom and even gloom of the day of the Lord... Understand that the day of the Lord must come because as it continues on that day of the Lord, it will end in the triumph and joy of the kingdom of Christ. Keep that in mind. We begin tonight with gloomy silence. We end with glorious song. Zephaniah's prophecy, as we talked about, divides into three parts. On Sunday, we looked at part one, the declaration of the Lord. As he declared, and remember this, he declared judgment on Judah... But then he goes on to declare the much larger global judgment in the day of the Lord that has yet to happen. Judah's a picture of the coming day of the Lord. What happened with Judah in 586. And again, for those who missed it in 70 AD, are pictures in type. They prefigure the day of the Lord that is coming upon the whole earth. So we begin in part two tonight, the day of the Lord. Again, verse seven, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Before the Lord God. Ever want to give the critic a one-way ticket to Shuttyville on the la-la-la, I can't hear you express? I'm just being honest with you. There are times I get tired of the contrary attitudes. And what the critics don't understand 
is they're the same questions that have been coming for years. And I'm talking about those who are trying to get around this whole idea of the Bible and God being real and there actually being a creator. People who send up those red herring questions that come because they're not seeking answers as much as they're seeking justification to live in ignorance of God. Or justification to live in opposition to God. Be silent before the Lord God. Paul puts it a little more kindly than I do. He says in Romans 9.20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? (laughs) I want to be justified for my behavior. Hey, the only way you're going to be justified is if you go by way of Jesus and the cross. And then He will justify you. He will justify all your wrongdoing. He will justify all your sin. He will take it and make it just as if I'd never done it. That's what Jesus does. We sit here arguing and debating and rebelling, and Jesus says, you know, if you just believe in me, we wouldn't even have to have this conversation. I would take care of these things. Now, as the section begins, I remind you, again, of what we we learned from the declaration of the Lord in the first several verses, verse 2 through 6, and that is that Zephaniah is presenting both a prophecy that was immediately fulfilled historically with the flow of Babylon into Judah, but also a prophecy that is distant and speaking of the future day of the Lord. And as it was about to be in Jerusalem, so it is, I believe, about to be in the world. A time when all vocal opposition to God's sovereignty will be silenced. It's real easy to be smug and cynical with our questions when we're down here. It's not going to be so easy to be cynical in the face of the Lord. We will be silent. But in the immediate sense, he says the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. The sacrifice here is Jerusalem. And don't think that that was easy for the Lord. Jerusalem, the Bible calls it the apple of His eye. The city of God's own choosing. And yet He has determined for it to be a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. His guests in the immediate sense, Babylon. What's interesting is and we'll see this a little bit in a while, but when we get to Revelation, you discover that the judgment is, again, against Babylon. And once again, Jerusalem is right in the middle of the mess. So what played out in 586 B.C. will play out again, only to a much grander, more global scale than we have ever seen it. So keep that in mind. Beginning in verse 8 then, then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold. That word temple is added in by the translators. Who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. See? (laughs) There's the silence. 
All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will become, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. The fish gate. Just a, a few little notes about this section. The fish gate is the northernmost gate, was the northernmost gate of Jerusalem. Today, it's the Damascus gate. But back in Zephaniah's day, the fish gate, and that's because it was closest to the fish market. That's where the fish were brought in. Um, from what's that? What's the little? Uh, what's the little town just south of Tel Aviv? Joppa. Joppa. The fish would come in from Joppa and would be brought in then through the fish gate into Jerusalem. So it's the northernmost gate. It is also the gate most easily conquered. It's the weakest part of the whole city of Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem on all the other sides is surrounded by hills, but on that side it's accessible. And so the fish gate would be the gate to conquer through or to come charging through. The second quarter mentioned here was in Zephaniah's day northwest of the Temple Mount. So just as you've come into the fish gate, continue on to the right, and now you're into the second quarter. The hills here, where it says there will be a loud crash from the hills. That speaks of the hills of Jerusalem. Now if you look at an aerial view, it's not so easy to see. It's easier to see when you're walking through Jerusalem. It is a city built on hills, a number of different hills. The Mount of Olives, the Temple Mount, which is Mount Moriah. Mount Zion, Mount Scopus, mountains all around. The hills of Jerusalem here are Zion, Moriah, and the Ophel. The Ophel, if you ask a Jewish person, what's the Ophel? They'll say, well, that's the Temple Mount. And so that's the, those are the hills being spoken of here. And then finally, note this, it says the people of Canaan will be silenced. Well, I thought they were driven out hundreds of years before. They were. But the people of Canaan here alludes to merchants and tradesmen, but it also may have a derogatory element to it. What's interesting about this section is Zephaniah describes the very path of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion into Jerusalem. This is how he came in. By the fish gate to the the most vulnerable wall in the city as I shared, through the second quarter, across the Jerusalem hills, into the mortar, and finally up onto the Ophel, the Temple Mount itself. That's how Nebuchadnezzar came into the city. And so prophetically, remember for Zephaniah, this is before the fall of Jerusalem. Zephaniah describes how the enemy is going to come into the city and the exact path he's going to take. And so when it was immediately proven true, when it actually happened, we look back in Zephaniah and go, okay, legitimate prophet. He said it, it happened. That's how you know he's legit. The exact journey of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the Lord also in this section calls out five distinct groups for judgment. Back in verse 8, He mentions the princes, the king's sons. We'll just call them the pitiful princes. The pitiful princes are called out for judgment. And this likely is speaking of a specific group of princes, the sons of King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah would come quickly after Josiah. There would be Josiah and then three, three more kings. Three more kings. 
The last one being Zedekiah, who himself would finally be taken off into Babylon. Let me read this to you. Jeremiah 52, verse 10. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, these pitiful princes, before his eyes. And he slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah, and then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. The pitiful princes. By application, the Lord always holds leaders accountable. And it doesn't matter if it's leaders of a nation, leaders of a state, leaders of a community, or leaders of a church. The Lord holds His leaders accountable. And so these princes would be the very picture of that. A second group of people that the Lord calls out for judgment, the foreign fashionistas. There they are in verse 8. I will punish all those who clothe themselves with foreign garments. What's the deal with that? The problem was, these are those who in Judah were adopting the look of the Babylonians. They were adopting the styles of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians. And because of this, their external style signaled an internal settling. They were adapting to and compromising with the pagan nations surrounding them. And that's how it starts. It starts by looking like the sinful world. It starts by making ourselves accustomed to and comfortable with the sinful world. Are we accustoming ourselves to the things of our culture that are opposed to God? Are we dressing like? Are we acting like? Are we studying like? Are we moving like people in our culture? The Bible says, and I am as convicted of this as anybody, so please do not hear Pastor Rick talking down. I'm not. I'm talking inward. Do not be conformed to this world. Romans 12.2 But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You could be at home tonight listening to lies or you can be here tonight listening to the truth. I'm not making any specific point there. Deb? Because the president happens to be speaking tonight, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying. First John 2.15, bad pastor, bad. First John 2.15 says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. i got to confess, there are things in the world I love. And John said, don't. Because the more you love the things of the world, the more you're going to be like the things of the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So ask yourself, even here tonight, which way am I drawn? What are the lures? What's pulling me? And by the way, if you're struggling with hopelessness, perhaps some of that has to do with the things of the world that you're so into that are keeping you from spending the time with Jesus that would lift that hopelessness. The pitiful princes, the foreign fashionistas, it just keeps getting better. We have the leaping looters. <laughs> the leaping looters in verse 9, those who leap on the temple threshold or on the threshold. The reason why it says the temple threshold is in the very next line of the verse. It says, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. So what temple are we talking about if it is a temple in fact? Some say that this implies Dagon worship. The Philistine fish god 
who you Bible students know was here today, gone tomorrow. (laughs) They didn't survive when the Ark of the Covenant came into his temple. I just, I couldn't pass that one up. I I love that. That's one of my favorite puns of all time, right there. Here today, gone tomorrow. You You guys got that, right, everybody? Okay. Some think that the whole leaping on the temple, that there, there's a verse, a reference in 1 Samuel 5, verse 5. We won't go there right now, but but implies this idea of kind of leaping across the temple and that that's how they entered the temple of Dagon. It's, it's a little fishy. I don't know if that's really the way it works. Um, but it refers, some say, to those Jews who were following after the Philistine god Dagon. And they happen to be the leaping looters, that they are the ones who are doing this, um, ripping people off with violence and deceit, and they're worshiping Dagon. I don't know that that's it. I think it's probably more likely that what we're talking about here is uh, people who are ripping off their fellow Jews, and they're crossing the temple threshold of the temple as if they haven't done anything wrong. Not leaping across the temple threshold as a picture of just stepping lightly because I'm good. Right? It's alright. It's all cool. You know, you don't know what I'm really doing back here. But the Lord knows that what you're really doing is you're ripping off your brothers and your sisters. And Jesus went after the Pharisees on this very point. Matthew 23.14, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. And perhaps you recall this, that what the Pharisees would do, would go to these widows, and they would say, Look, we, we will pray for you, we will help you with this, we're, gonna do, we're, we're really going to minister to you, uh, but, but you're going to have to really put into the coffer here of, of the temple treasuries. They would charge the widows for prayer. Can you imagine Les doing that? (laughs) Yeah, I'll be there at 4 o'clock. Have your checkbook ready. (laughs) And yes, we take all major credit cards. (laughs) But that's what they were doing. Jesus calls them out. The leaping looters, by the way, are out in full force today. 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 describes them as lovers of self lovers of money, and then the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, Paul gives a whole list of things, but sums it up then in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In fact, make a mental note of that. You might want to go look at this later. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-6 through 6 can be summed up. All of this list that Paul gives of attitudes, behaviors, and sin in the last days can be summed up with lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households, leaping looters. They enter into households, they captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Now some of you ladies might say, well that's sexist. You know what? I see it all the time. Single moms who are doing their best to raise their kids for whatever reason things have have gone wrong. (coughs) And guys coming in and taking advantage of that. It's one of those things that really ticks me off. And it happens, and it's happening today. So you got the leaping looters. The fourth group of people are the spiritually stagnant. Verse 12, he says, I'm going to punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. 
And you say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. The spiritually stagnant. Literally, if you have a King James, it probably reads more like this. I will punish those who are settling on their leaves. Or thickening on their leaves. Jeremiah said the same thing about the people of Moab. Jeremiah 48 verse 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. Here's the point. The lees are the kind of that stuff in wine that begins to settle. And it settles down. And if wine, especially back in those days, they would pour wine from vessel to vessel and strain out the lees. Otherwise, all the wine would start to taste sour like the lees that are at the bottom of the vessel. So you would have to pour vessel to vessel, and then you'd let it sit, and you'd pour vessel to vessel. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but this is what I read that they did. The spiritually stagnant need stirring up. They need discipline. I need the discipline of the Lord when I'm settled in my faith and not growing. And oftentimes that's when it comes. I start to get poured out. And it can be uncomfortable. And it can be painful. And it can be frightening. And it's even more frightening sometimes to realize the one holding the jug is the Lord. Pour me out from vessel to vessel. Why would He do that? To stir me up. And God will do that. He will even bring hardship. And yes, I believe God causes hardship. God causes, the Bible tells us, He's the one who causes calamity. And He will do this to stir us up. And to pour us out because that's what we need so that we don't get stagnant and sour. And so James writes in James 1-2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's got His eye on the big picture of your life. The finished product of your life, not the comfort of today. And so he'll pour out and it'll get difficult and it'll get painful. Can I make a suggestion? Rather than waiting and settling and waiting for the Lord to need to use hardship to stir you up, there's another way you can get stirred up. There's another way to stay fresh and refreshed. And you're doing it right now. It's what the Word does. The Word washes us. The Word cleanses us. The Word stirs up my spirit. The Word keeps my soul, my mind fresh, keeps me thinking right. The Word directs my body in the way that I should go. By contrast, the spiritually stagnant tend to get sour. And I've seen this process, perhaps you have too. Over and over, this pattern. It always begins by souring on teaching. When someone sours on the teaching of the Word, it always concerns me. That's the first red flag. Because when someone sours on teaching, it's not long after that that they begin to sour on worship. And worship's not really doing it for me anywhere anymore like it used to. The teaching, you know, I've got enough of the Word. I've, I've had the Word. I've had the Word, the Word, the Word. So much of the Word. I don't need it right now. So I'm going to step back from that. But I'm coming for worship. And next thing you know, worship's really not doing it either. Sour sour and ultimately they will sour on the Lord himself 
which is the greater danger. And they'll say things like, the Lord will not do good or evil. Well, how do they say that? He won't do good. i got to make my own way. i got to make things happen in my life. That's up to me. i got to pull myself up by my bootstraps because the Lord's not going to do it. He expects me to. And once again, it's a step back from the Lord and it's cutting the Lord out of the picture. And He won't do evil. Well, God wouldn't send a good, loving person like me to hell, would He? I'm good. Jesus answered both of these. He won't do good. He won't do evil. Jesus said, He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. God will do good and God will do things that are calamitous. God has created hell. He created hell for the devil and his angels. So God is capable of all of these things. Spiritual stagnation, however, sours my mind to God as my Savior. The Word, the worship, my Lord. Are all of these sweet to you? If not, perhaps you need a little pouring out. Spiritual stagnation. And then finally, the fifth group are the merchants of the mortar. Verse 11 talks about them. The merchants of the mortar, also referring to the people of Canaan. Again, the mortar was was the business district. West of the Temple Mount, in fact, today if you walk on the western side of the Temple Mount, especially on the southern, southwest side of the Temple Mount, you see what was the first century mortar. It was the business district. There's a Herodian street there all smashed up with massive stones, and there are shops that were all along there. And that was the place where a lot of the buying and the selling was taking place down below the Temple Mount. It was part of the route of Nebuchadnezzar, wiped out as he came in. But the merchants of the mortar are called the people of Canaan here. I think, it's just my opinion, but I think it's because they look so much like their predecessors who they had driven out of the land. They have become so much like the people of Canaan themselves in their buying, in their selling, in their trading. They were more about profit than they were about prophecy. P-R-O-F-I-T. Their trust was in gold and silver. Buy gold! And in reality, all of this financial picture that they were so about, that the merchants were so into, it ended up as plunder for Babylon. All the riches ended up plunder for the enemy. Do you get it? All the riches end up as plunder for the enemy. Money always does. That's why Jesus says, you know, then use unrighteous mammon for the kingdom. At least invest in something that's eternal. You know, if you're going to make investments. Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can't do it. You can't manage it. And in all of this, Jerusalem, again, is the microcosm of the wrath of God in the Great Tribulation. Of God pouring out His anger. And as I said before, ironically, Jerusalem and Babylon are going to be right in the center of that picture once again. If you study Revelation 18, you will find some of these same types of people lamenting Babylon's destruction. Listen to this. 
Remember what I mentioned, the merchants and the mortar and the leaping looters and all the, the whole group. Revelation 18, verse 9, And all the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Well, they're the pathetic, pitiful princes. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the city, the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Further down in Revelation 18, it speaks of the merchants who are weeping over the burning of Babylon. There goes our cash flow. And you can lay those two against each other, this section of Zephaniah chapter 1 and Revelation 18, and it's fascinating. Read on, verse 14. Near, he says, is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now if that sounds at all familiar... Compare it to Revelation chapter 6. Turn over there real quick. Revelation chapter 6. Because what Zephaniah just described in the day of the Lord, we hear opening up as the tribulation gets underway in John's description, Revelation 6 through 19. Actually 6 through 20, because the day of the Lord, as you know, includes the millennial kingdom. It's all part of the glorious day of the Lord. But the tribulation period, as described there in Revelation 6, is parallel to what Zephaniah prophesied. And it's fascinating that John picks up on this and writes it. The day of the Lord. By the way, before I read something to you here, the day of the Lord has another name. In the first half of the seven years of tribulation, that name is called the wrath of the Lamb. Look at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair and the moon, the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, would be included. Then the kings of the earth and the great men of the command and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand it is the wrath of the lamb now i've had people tell me that they believe that we're going to be here for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. They're mid, mid-tribbers. They believe in a mid-tribulation rapture that halfway through, three and a half years in, we get pulled up, taken out. But we're going to go through the first three and a half years because it's really only the last three and a half years that you really see the wrath of God poured out. They haven't read Revelation 6. 
which very clearly states this is the wrath of the Lamb. And I remind you, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. But note this, the great day of their wrath has come, their wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Father, it's all the same. And who is able to stand? Are you? Am I able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Here's the surprising answer. I am able. Oh, not to stand in before the wrath of the Lamb, but by the grace of the Lamb, I will stand. Even as that is breaking loose on earth. I will stand before the Lamb in His presence by the grace of Jesus Christ who commanded, I remind you from Sunday, Luke 21.36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And Jude writes in verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I will stand. I am absolutely certain of it. We have been assured time and again throughout the Scriptures that we will stand by faith in Jesus on that day. And I know this because I've got a hiding place. Back in Zephaniah. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. And we talked about this Sunday. It's a nation without longing, without passion. It's numb. Before the decree takes effect, and the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. We looked at that at length on Sunday. If you didn't hear the teaching, I encourage you to go listen online. Click it or tick it. Right? (laughs) What an amazing promise. Gather together before all this happens. I'm telling you it's going to happen. God said to Judah prior to Babylon. So gather now. And perhaps you will be hidden. Did they gather? No. Were they hidden? No. Did they go through that microcosm, that miniature picture of the tribulation? Yes, they did. The same message is our message right now, today. Gather now before the wrath of the Lamb. I I do, by the way, think that wrath is part of the Gospel. It is part of what we share with other people. Jesus loves you. He died for you, proving His love on the cross. He will save you if you will just cry out to Him and and, and make Him your Lord. But if you don't, please understand, His wrath is coming. Well, that's something we Christians shy away from. Oh, I don't want to get into the whole wrath thing because I'll be seen as one of those, you know, hard-nosed Bible bangers. Great! (laughs) I I, I think we have gypped the non-believing world from the truth when we stop short of it. Tell the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help you, God. The wrath is coming and is part of the story. Now, however, the faithful remnant of Israel in the future will have a hiding place. 
talked about that. We looked at it. Faithful saints will have a hiding place as well. Jesus said in John 14.3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 4, For Gaza will be abandoned. Interesting. And Ashkelon, a desolation. And Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Fascinating, fascinating stuff here. This happened, by the way, in the final annihilation of of the Philistines by the Babylonians. After that, the Philistines really had little or no power. They were gutted. They kind of, well, they just became part of the different nations. Some even became Jews. I know Hamas would love to hear that. But the Philistines, wiped out by Babylon, but this has a future edge to it, this prophecy. Now this last March, a handful of us stood out at Beersheba. We stood on a a, a large kind of hill there, and you could look across, and you could see Gaza, and Ashdod, and Ashkelon. And it's interesting, tall uh, skyscrapers, huge buildings that dot that Mediterranean shoreline. And yet the Bible says Gaza will be abandoned. That is a prophecy yet future. That is a prophecy that we will see. We may not see it fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. If not in the run-up to the tribulation, it will be fulfilled in the tribulation. And if I was Hamas, I think I'd want to know that. Let me tell you something about Gaza today. Gaza, the Gaza Strip as as we know it, is 139 square miles. Let me make that a little more clear for you. It's 25 miles long by 3 to 6 miles wide. Compare that to Whidbey Island. Whidbey Island is twice as long, twice as wide. The size of Gaza. Okay? Whidbey Island is 58 miles from north to south. It's 12 miles at its widest. So again, Gaza, 25 miles long, half, less than half actually of the length of Whidbey Island, and three to six miles at its width. 80,000 people live on Whidbey Island today. That's a census 2014. If you didn't fill that out, we may have 80,003 or four, I don't know. 1,860,000 people are packed into the Gaza Strip that is half the size of Whidbey Island. It is a hotbed of despair. And you want to talk about hopelessness? It is a hopeless place on planet Earth. And I do have compassion for those who call themselves Palestinians who are tied up in that tiny little place. I have strong feelings of judgment, and it's not mine to judge, it is the Lord's, but strong feelings of judgment toward their leader, Hamas who while their people are starving to death and eking out miserable existence there in the Gaza Strip, Hamas is pouring all of its money and its malice into weaponry against Israel. That's where all of the aid goes. It does not get to the people who need it. It goes to the funding of terror. And the situation is bleak there today. No wonder the war continues. But God originally gave that land, the Gaza Strip, He gave it to Judah. Joshua 15, verses 1-12 through 12, details that uh, title deed, if you will, giving that to the tribe of Judah. And to the Philistines, again, He said, Gaza will be abandoned. And it was in days past. 
In fact, when David was on the throne, the entire region that is the Gaza Strip was swallowed up by the kingdom of David. By the kingdom then that Solomon took over, it stayed that length in the south. It actually expanded further on up into the north. Gaza was given by God to the Jewish people. Interestingly, Gaza will be abandoned. In 2005, at the direction of then Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, Israel abandoned Gaza. Israel finally pulled out of Gaza completely. When they did, the financial picture in Gaza nosedived. It has been an impoverished state ever since. I believe it will soon be abandoned even by Hamas. Because the Bible tells us it's going to become a pasture land in the kingdom. Look at verse 5. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast. The nation of the Keratites. Not the carrot tops, the Keratites. <laughs> the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flock, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortunes. So interesting that Ashkelon is a Jewish city today. And so there are those, and I'm getting this, there are those who are reading this and going, wow, this sounds awfully present day. It's not completely present day because Gaza is not abandoned, but this is the direction that the land is going, and Gaza will itself be pasture land for shepherds in the coming kingdom of the Lord. By the way, Keratites there, back in verse 5, the definition of that, the Keratites are the Philistines, Keratites, Cherethites are Cretans. That is, they sailed across from the island of Crete which means they're European, Greek-European, not Arabic. Again, I point that out to you. I've pointed it out many times that the Keratites, the Philistines, no longer even exist as a people group. They were wiped out back when Babylon came in and conquered. And now what follows is a series of judgments, fulfilled judgments against nations in the same way this judgment was fulfilled against the Philistines, that original people group, more people groups throughout the rest of chapter 2. Let me move quickly through these. Each one of these are miniature pictures of the day of the Lord. Verse 8, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Verse 10, this they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them. He will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to Him, everyone from his own place. Moab and Ammon. The Moabites, the Ammonites, sons of Lot by his two daughters. I know, ooh. Genesis chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. Tell us about Moab and and Ammon, these two boys who became the father of these two nations. They were Israel's enemies across the years, ultimately wiped out. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, along with Zephaniah and other prophets, repeat these devastating judgments on Moab, Ammon, and Edom. Bible students, which is what today? It's Jordan. Ammon, Jordan, named after the Ammonites, because the Ammonites, Ammon, was in the north, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south, and gang all of Jordan today, even the most populated areas, are really desolate by comparison to Israel. Edom is a complete desolation, southern Jordan. What was described in prophecy by Zephaniah, we have seen fulfilled. But you know, it's just great. Here's the grace of our God. Daniel chapter 11, verse 41 says, He, speaking of Antichrist, will enter the beautiful land, speaking of Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of His hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So these three nations, so opposed to Israel for so long, are suddenly going to be rescued by the Lord. His grace poured out. Much of the region is going to remain salt pits, even in the Millennial Kingdom. Got to get our salt from somewhere. And so that's going to remain that way and somewhat desolate. However, the people are going to be saved out of the hand of Antichrist. Why would God do that? Because of grace. Because that's His nature. And for anyone who would say God is an unjust, unfair God, take them to Daniel 11.41 and say, look at what He does for Moab, Ammon, and Edom, the enemies of His people. He's going to save them out of the hand of the Antichrist. And by the way, it's interesting to me, Israel's most durable peace since 1967 in the Middle East is with Jordan. Their friendliest neighbors, the country of Jordan, land of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Verse 12. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Note, 612 BC. That's when that happened. He will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All the beasts which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. That's all the buildings and the, and the temples there in Nineveh wiped out. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Wait a minute, that's what God says. And Nineveh said that. How she will become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Now, Nahum the prophet, we already studied, dealt fully with Assyria's demise. Talked about it at length. But because of this passage, we have to date Zephaniah before 612 B.C. Okay? That's important. Couldn't be after 612. Remember, He prophesied in the days of Josiah, 640 to 609. And I shared on Sunday, I believe for a multiplicity of reasons, some that I shared on Sunday, that Zephaniah prophesied toward the end of Josiah's reign, which ended in 609. But this prophecy had to come before 612. Okay, you're throwing a bunch of dates out at us, Rick. Why does that matter? It matters because Josiah's reforms and his revival took place in 622. So between 622 
and 612, in that decade, things got so bad in Judah that Zephaniah came prophesying its destruction. It didn't take long. It never does. In fact, there are some scholars out there who believe that the revival of 622 B.C., Josiah's revival, lasted about a year. And then the people began trailing back into idolatry. It just doesn't take long. And what we see in this whole section is when a nation gets set against the Lord, nation after nation, from Assyria even to Israel, nation after nation goes down by the head. Chapter 3. Do we have time to do chapter 3 tonight? Yes. Okay? Alright. It's not midnight yet. No, that's true. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Wait a minute. What is this rebellious, defiled, tyrannical city? This is Jerusalem. He's talking now about Jerusalem because note that the Lord is righteous within her. And He will do no injustice. Even though her prophets are out of control, her priests are messed up, the law is ignored. The Lord is righteous within her. Every morning, He brings His justice to light. He does not fail. I love that. The Lord is righteous within her. Every morning. Do you know the Lord is righteous within you every morning? He does not fail. You wake up to that new day and God is righteous within you. He never does injustice. Every morning He brings about justice, faithfulness. He brings it to light. He does not fail. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, Jeremiah wrote. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord is righteous within her. I wish people could understand that. I wish those who would question and come against the Lord would recognize that He's just right. He is always right. But in contrast to His justice, His righteousness, His faithfulness, but the unjust knows no shame. No shame, no embarrassment. He describes in Judah of that day sin for sport. Decadence on display. Depravity on parade as the norm of the culture. This is the way the culture was. We read the same thing from Jeremiah, who, remember, was contemporary with Zephaniah. They both were on the scene at this exact same time. And Jeremiah writes in chapter 6, verse 15, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush 
Therefore they fall down among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Do we remember how to blush in our culture? We can be certain of two things where sin is flaunted as it is today. It always signals the end of a nation. There's sin in every nation. There has been sin in America since day one. But I'm talking about when sin is flaunted. When it's not kept for the night, but it is in broad daylight. When it's just fun and laughed at and righteousness is mocked. You're close to the end of a nation. And where sin is flaunted, it's a sure sign of the end of days. Because we absolutely are told in Scripture that will be par for the course in the end of the last days. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you, Jerusalem, Judah, you will revere me except instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Lock, stock, and both barrels. The day of the Lord. And it is a day that is coming, because for all that happened to Judah in 586 B.C., as I've said over and over, it was a picture of the much larger calamity that the Lord has promised to bring for all the nations. Now, that should be the end of Zephaniah. If I was writing it, it would be. Screen down, curtain closes, lights up, day's over. The judgment has fallen. And by all accounts, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, should seal our fate for eternity. However... Psalm 30 verse 5 tells us, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Part 3, the daughter of Zion. Part 3, we have the day of the Lord, part 2, now we're the daughter of Zion. Part 3, verse 9. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Purified lips. I like the sound of that. Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. That's so cool. God does not use soap to wash out our mouths. (laughs) How many of you as kids did the whole soap thing? Just curious. Can you still taste it? Every now and then I still go, Mom! Man! I love the scene in A Christmas Story. Life Boy had a nice, smooth aftertaste. 
Anyway, <laughs> God doesn't do it that way. How does God clean our lips? How does He clean the foul and the unclean things from our mouth with coal from the altar? Okay, that's obscure. Gang, what does the altar of incense signify? Prayer. Prayer. You want to clean your lips? Pray. You want to be a people of purified lips? The more time we spend praying, the harder it is to speak unclean things. Be a people of prayer. Now what's interesting about these purified lips here in verse 9, this may be one of two absolutely amazing prophecies fulfilled in this generation. Things that we can look at and see. A lot of Bible scholars lean this direction. The phrase purified lips, barar safa, in the Hebrew, can also be translated pure language. I will give the peoples a pure language. Okay, how's that a prophecy? 1858, a Lithuanian Jew was born named Eliezer Perlman. You might be more familiar with the name that he adopted when he moved to Israel, Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Ben Yehuda, in 1881, at the age of 23, moved uh, to Israel from Lithuania. He moved uh, with his wife Deborah to Jerusalem. They set up house there. They had a small son. And the moment they set foot in the land, Eliezer Ben Yehuda said, I will no longer speak my native tongue. We will speak Hebrew in my house. And he and his wife raised their child speaking nothing but Hebrew. Until that time, for 2,000 years, my friends, Hebrew had been a dead language. It's the only language in history to be revived and spoken now as a common language. No, That's never happened with any other people group. Once a language is dead, it's dead. Well, what about Latin? How many people speak Latin? It's a dead language. You can learn it. You can try to speak it, but it is not spoken as the common language. There are people who look at this and they say, wait a minute, I will give to the peoples a pure language. That's the King James translation. And it's a good translation. I'm going to give them a pure language. Is that perhaps a sign of the times? Suddenly, Hebrew is revived. Right at the same time, just prior to the nation being born in a day. Interesting. Ben Yehuda is credited with the revival of Hebrew as the common Jewish language. And because of this, every major city in Israel has a Ben Yehuda street. Right, Spencer? And they're a great place back. The Ben Yehuda street in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem are great places to go hang out. It's where the Jews go to play. Ben Yehuda. Perhaps a fulfillment of prophecy of a language reborn. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring offerings. Okay, wow. In the mid-1980s, there was a large tribe discovered in Ethiopia, the Falashas. But what was interesting about this Falasha tribe, Africans, is that this obscure group had copies of the Torah. And no one knows how they got them. They used prayer shawls. They prayed Hebrew prayers. They kept Shabbat every week, along with annually three major feasts, Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Falashas. 
Israel didn't even know what to do with them when they discovered this people group. Again, mid-80s, not long ago, 1985, 86, right around there. But in 1981, there was a covert operation called Operation Solomon where they flew massive planes from Israel into Ethiopia and they airlifted 14,500 Felucias from there and brought them home. Full Jewish status full citizenry of Israel. And these Falashas were hilarious on the airplanes. I wish I could have seen this, but I can describe it to you. They were building fires, campfires on the airplane. (laughs) They didn't even know they were out in the air. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. All they knew is they got on in in this room, took off, you know, rumble, 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 and next thing they know, they open up the doors and they're in Israel. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Might that be a modern day prophecy fulfilled? There's good reason to believe it is. Verse 11, in that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me and then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave among you a humble and lowly people And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies. Nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Daughter of Zion, and understand, the reason why there's no one proud there is because this entire thing is a work of God, not a work of man. This is what the Lord's going to perform and do. And all the people with purified lips, restored, regathered, humble hearts, they will finally return to the Lord their God. Verse 14, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Who is that? That is none other than Jesus Christ. In their midst, in Israel, in the kingdom, as it all gets underway. This is one of only two times in the entire Hebrew Scriptures that the Lord is referred to as the King of Israel. Just twice. Here by Zephaniah and before by Isaiah. Listen to the verse. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. Now who spoke those words? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the one, the Redeemer of Israel. And Jesus is the King of Israel. And He is... It's just such a fascinating way that Isaiah says that. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Well, which is which? Yes! Uh, Mind-boggling. Mind-blowing. But the Lord is in their midst. The King of Israel, Jesus, is there. According to the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus must be God. Why? Because He's the first and the last, and there is no other God besides Him. So there can't be another first and last. Only the Lord God is the first and the last. So when Jesus claims to be the first and the last, 
He must therefore be the Lord God. Right? Stands to reason. This same one will dwell in the midst of his people in the glorious kingdom. The daughter of Zion will shout for joy and sing because the king is there. But check this out. Someone else joins the song. Verse 16. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy, or literally, renah in the Hebrew, singing. He's going to sing over you. Now, i got to ask, what does it sound like to hear Jesus sing? I can't imagine a more beautiful sound in the world than the voice of Jesus. I, I wonder how He would do on the voice. I don't think He would be on American Idol. I'm just saying. What does His voice sound like? We know He sang. Matthew 26.30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now I know what a lot of us think. Bunch of guys singing a hymn, and out they go. You know? How, how, how pretty could it have been? Gang, the voice of Jesus. And here, He will rejoice over you with singing. A beautiful, restful, encouraging, I can only imagine, strengthening sound as suddenly the king begins to sing. I imagine, it's not in the Bible, it's just Rick's imagination, but I imagine every voice dropping off in awe until one voice is left singing and that of our Lord. Jesus singing over His people. Wow. Everyone goes silent. He quiets them. He, he, it says He will quiet you. We started off tonight's study with silence. At the horror, at the terrible day of the Lord. Be silent. And here, we're quiet. But it's for a completely different reason. We find Jesus quieted by love. But it's not, it's not their love, the daughter of Zion. It's not our love. Notice this. He will be quiet in His love. What does that mean? It's not their love or ours which brings peace. It's His. Again, this email I was sent full of questions this last week. And one of the questions was, if I'm good and loving, how can a good and loving God send me to hell? Here's the thing. Your love cannot save you. Only His love can. Your goodness cannot save you. Only His goodness can. It's His love that brings my salvation. It's His love that causes all things to go quiet. Everybody to stare up enamored at Him as He sings, quieted by His own love. His own love quiets Him. His own love brings Him peace. Why? Because it's His own love that saves those whom He loves so much. Verse 18. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. 
Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. And I will save, listen hopeless ones, listen, I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at that time, I will gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The day of the Lord that begins with that terrible silence ends with this wonderful quiet. The Lord accomplishing everything He said He would accomplish. It all starts with seven years of unimaginable wrath and fury poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And then a thousand years of peace and prosperity in the Millennial Kingdom. And then a final judgment for those who want to be judged by their deeds. They'll get their time in court. And finally, a new day with a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and we will be with the Lord forever. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You again, Lord, for repeating the promise and keeping the kingdom before us and keeping Your love present. And Father, it is my prayer You would lift despair out of this place tonight if there is anyone despairing. That You would erase hopelessness if there is anyone hopeless. And may we find our peace and quiet in the love of Jesus, our Savior. We thank You for Your Word. And we look forward to that glorious day. In Jesus' name, Amen.